Shamai, Kroisel, and welcome to this week's episode of the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. This week, we're bringing you an interview with two women cricketers from the Pembrokeshire Ladies Cricket League. Added to that, we have our feature, Curator's Corner, when Dr Andrew Hignall gives us an insight into the history of cricket scoring. So first up, we have the podcast Jan Gray, who will introduce this week's interviewees. Hi, so we're here with Sam Rossiter. Sam has been the captain of the Hook Cricket Club ladies team for the past 25 years and is currently the secretary of the Pembrokeshire Ladies Cricket League. And we also have Megan Arthur, who plays in the league. And we're going to ask them a bit about the league and its history. So, uh, Sam, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, Could you tell us a bit about how the league started and um, how long it's been going? Um, Yeah, well, uh, women's cricket has always been pretty popular in Pembrokeshire, to be honest. Um, Prior to the actual league setting up, um, several teams played friendlies throughout the 1980s. Um, Teams including uh, Burton, Langham, Moreni, Ramphy, Hook and Half of the West. um, and the Pembrokeshire Archive actually has a local newspaper report of a game between Burton and Langham ladies that was played in 1950. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the foundations for the league, as we know it today, um, were laid in 1993. Um, it was initiated by uh, Nick Evans. Um, without Nick's support and input, um, it really wouldn't have taken off as it did. Um, and he's still actively involved, um, remains support as supportive as ever um, as our president um, so during um, the 1993 and 1994 seasons with 11 teams interested in playing uh, friendly fixtures were organized initially which uh, led to league and cup competitions being established in 1995 um, followed by the formation of the Pembrokeshire Ladies Cricket Association uh, with the constitution accepted at the AGM in 1996. Um, so basically from, from 1995 to 2003, roughly, we had eight teams competing throughout that period. Um, and well, pretty much for the next decade, it was like that um, before we started hitting a bit of a, a downward slope sort of thing. So, uh, a real low point really came uh, 2014, um, which we when we actually came down to just four teams competing. Um, so at this point, we um, sought a bit of help really, and Cricket Wales were very, very supportive at this point. Um, Kerry Shahal provided funding for um, indoor hubs at uh, two venues in Hofford West and Tembe. Um, to try and encourage more women and girls to give the game a go. Um, and um, whereas Martin Jones and Rick Walton were also very helpful at this point, and they, they ran the hubs. Um, but luckily, from that point, uh, we've virtually we've expanded almost year on year. Um, Lorraine and Kogetti uh, rejoined us in 2017. Hoffer West followed in 2018. Uh, then Whitland, Nayland and Arbuth brought us up to nine teams for 2019. So, um, like I said, we've been quite lucky, really. Um, and then this year, Pembroke Dock also entered. So if 2020 had been a normal season, we would have had two divisions of five. For the first time we would have had two divisions, unfortunately, 
didn't quite go to plan, but um, looking ahead to next year, I've also been informed that Sinistrals are intending to join us in 2021. So possibly 11 teams, uh, which would cap a remarkable turnaround from 2014, really, uh, with seven new teams in seven years. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, so, what do you think's caused the um, the uptake? Has it been Cricket World's help or a mixture of things? Um, well, definitely Cricket World's help. At that point in 2004, we did need um, some out, you know, input from outside sort of thing. Um, but um, obviously there's increased coverage of ladies' cricket um, in that time, isn't there? Um, you know, I think, I think that... that even though before thinking doing this, I hadn't really thought about it, but uh, it it must have it must have helped people take an interest in the game. Do do you see a, a link between um, your league and perhaps other uh, other leagues? Uh, yeah, the, people are progressing. People do go progress to go on to play in the the men's league. Um, there's probably more now than there ever has been before. Um, you know. Uh, Megan and myself have both done it for quite a while, but uh, yeah, year on year there's more and more uh, ladies' names appearing, you know, in the best performances and things. Oh, very good. Um, what do you expect for the future? So you say you've got, an, uh, well, one club should have joined this year and another planning to join next year. Do you expect it to, or hope that it keeps expanding? And what are your plans for the league? Um, well, yeah, obviously I would hope to, but hope that it would keep on expanding. But I, I think, I think eleven is pretty good. I think we'll hear, we 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 settle for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, coming back from from the four teams, but um, but yeah, obviously we'll we'll try we'll keep encouraging women and girls to to play the game, and if if more new teams do come along, then great. No, thank you very much, uh, Megan. What got you into the league originally? Um, well, I live in, well, used to live in Criselli, um, and that's the club I play for. So I think I joined when I was 11 and I played in the junior setup. Um, my brothers used to play and I think they just encouraged me to play, probably played a little bit in school as well. Um, so in the junior, <clears throat> in the junior setup then, um, I think it was under 11s I played and then from there I joined the women's. I think I had to be 12 or 13 to um, play women, women's cricket. Um, and from there I just continued to play then. Um, and then I think when I was about probably 17, um, I played for the men. Okay. Uh, what, what's your favourite part about the, uh, the women's league? Um, definitely in Caselli, the social side of things. Um, it's a nice, good group of friends, um, but also just playing aspect as well, and just seeing the girls develop um, week in and week out. Is there a, uh, a strong movement from the like the juniors to the women's team? Um, it's probably quite a difference. Um, can't remember what age group now but they play softball probably until under 13s or under 11 Sam might correct me if I'm wrong um so then going to a hardball is quite a difference um and in Pembrokeshire we haven't really got a junior girls league um but the girls play within well it's a mixed um 
mixed junior team then. So maybe go into women's, a full women's league is a bit different as well. Do you find then that a lot of people who join the league uh, join as adults rather than as like, young teenagers or kids? We've got a couple of girls that come through, but it's surprising most of them are adults, I would say. Is that through work connections or...? Yes, probably when you're desperate and you need that 10th or 11th player and you, you get your colleagues to play a game. Um, but yeah, I would say it's, you know, just friends coming along um, with the odd person who's played before. What part about the league would you recommend to um, people interested in joining? Just the social side of it. I think it's nice to meet up with the friends um, each week, get to see people from the other team, um, but also fitness as well, keeping up, keeping active. Um, and like people sometimes find cricket boring, but you know, when they get into the game, it's actually quite an enjoyable sport where everyone's involved. No, that sounds really good. Um, Sam, did you um, play in the league before you became secretary? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I actually, I, from the start, um, uh, from the original season, yeah, I played. Still, still going. Still going. <laughs> no, t- you're not retiring soon, you, Sam. Um, well, <laughs> <easy>. <laughs> still young. Um, this is a question to either of you. How do people get in touch if they want to join? Um, like we have got the Twitter page up and running. So if anyone's following Twitter, they could message through that. Uh, we have got a Facebook page, but I'm not very good at keeping up to date with that one. There might be details actually on the Pembrokeshire County Cricket website for the mm. secretary and chairman's there might be. I'm not sure how up to date that is. <laughs> we could pop something on Twitter, so yeah. an up to date email perhaps. So, so social media is the best yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, um, that sounds lovely. And uh, really good luck for the future. I hope that the league continues to grow, especially after we finish with COVID. Thank you both very much for joining. Thank, Thank you. you. Our thanks to Sam Rossiter and Megan Arthur of the Pembrokeshire Ladies Cricket League there and to Jan Gray for bringing us that interview. We're now heading back to Curator's Corner. This is our chance to hear some historical detail behind some of the aspects of the game of cricket that we've covered in the podcast. We have Jane Cole from Haverford West Cricket Club to thank for this particular opportunity. We interviewed Jane as the long-standing scorer with the club, and it's to the history of cricket scoring that we're going to return today with our resident curator, Dr Andrew Hignall. Uh, Andrew will be... um, well known to most of you as the Heritage and Education Coordinator for Glamorgan County Cricket Club, but perhaps more importantly for today, uh, the official scorer for Glamorgan County Cricket Club since 1982. Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, uh, Stephen. I should say that I've actually had two stints as uh, Glamorgan scorer in my uh, student days, finishing off my first degree at Exeter University and then whilst doing my PhD at Cardiff University. I was Glamorgan's official scorer from 1982 until 1984 and then actually uh, moved to the uh, realms of school teaching before putting down my piece of chalk in 2004 
and taking over as the first team scorer during that year. Okay, let's begin at the beginning then. Um, when did people first start keeping score of cricket matches? Well, there's no known record of the very first uh, score sheet. That's because there's no known record of the very, very first uh, game of cricket. In terms of uh, keeping score, what we believe happened was that in the 17th and 18th century, the score was kept possibly by the umpire, the umpire standing at square leg, who would have taken a piece of wood with him and would have made a notch using a, a penknife uh, in the piece of wood every time a run was scored. Now, we mustn't forget that in those days, the wickets on, uh, or the pitches, I should say, on which the games were staged were very rough. And in fact, it was uh, quite rare for a batsman to get into double figures. So teams would uh, make scores in the region of maybe 30 or 40. And it would have been those notches on the stick which would have counted. In fact, uh, scorers uh, would have euphemistically been known as notchers in those days. As the game developed by the 19th century, and certainly into the 20th century, we know that paper records were being kept, and we also know that there would have been, instead of the umpire at square leg, we know that there would have been a scorer uh, sat on the boundary's edge, keeping uh, a note using uh, pen and ink. Okay, uh, I know that there was a, an element of, of gambling involved around early cricket. Was, was that an influence on uh, some of the reasons for keeping score and keeping an accurate score? Absolutely. Many of the games during the 1830s and 1840s in England, many of those games were held as challenge matches simply so that uh, gambling could take place. And there needed to be a very accurate record so that uh, bets uh, could be settled. The bookies uh, wouldn't have had any uh, disagreements. And I'm sure that as far as some of the early games in Wales, the people who would have kept record of the early games would have been passing the information to the bookmakers who would have been situated in a marquee on the boundary's edge and uh, the information would have been uh, passed on to the people who would have been gambling. I know as well that some of the games were also uh, staged as challenge matches. There would have been wages that one team would win for, uh, let's say, a purse of uh, maybe 50 sovereigns. So there had to be an accurate record. And some people may well have said that the umpire had other things to do standing at square leg rather than uh, keeping a note of the number of runs being scored. So yes, to answer your question, certainly the influence of gambling, either on individual performances or on the team's scores, would probably have influenced the, uh, the keeping of a paper record. The 19th century and the, the Victorian era um, was marked by a, a huge increase in industrialization and, and perhaps along with it, a huge increase in the level of record keeping per se. Again, was that something that influenced the way in which 
social occasions and, and, and sporting occasions were marked and recorded? Absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, it's interesting that the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth actually have a page from a scorebook for a game that took place on the 25th of July, 1851 at Montgomery, when Montgomery played Llanidlois. What's interesting, this is the first actual known score sheet, uh, the oldest surviving score sheet in Wales. It's interesting that it came from a score book. It's an extract. It's clearly uh, one of many that the Montgomery Club would have had. And it's interesting as well that it was manufactured by a company based in London. And clearly matches in Wales were taking place following the MCC rules and all of the paraphernalia associated with the game, the scorebooks which were being produced by various sporting outfitters uh, based in the southeast of England, those scorebooks were being used here in Wales. And with industrialisation and uh, improvements in communications came improvements in newspapers. So rather than weekly newspapers, we started to have daily broadsheets. And of course, the editors of the uh, newspapers were looking for content to fill these papers. And during the summer months, when these games were taking place, it was ideal content. In fact, many of the early newspaper reports, besides carrying a copy of the scores for the game, a, a scorecard, in fact, very similar to the one we're used to in modern times. Uh, it's interesting that these reports often would go into great detail about the post-match celebrations, the songs that took place, the meals that the uh, teams of gentlemen sat down to enjoy, and sometimes even almost verbatim, the speeches that took place. And uh, clearly uh, cricket was very, very newsworthy in the local newspapers of Wales, during the middle of the Victorian era. So recreational cricketers will obviously be very familiar with a, a scorebook. Would the detail of the scorebooks used in, in sort of the mid to late 19th century look very familiar to a recreational cricketer today? Probably yes. Um, a lot of recreational cricketers will be used to what we call linear sheets or box scoring, where you've got lots of little boxes, almost like graph paper. But the early ones that we've seen uh, in the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket, the early ones we've seen in particular from Llandovery Cricket Club, who have a scorebook going back to the, the 1870s. It's very, very similar to uh, a modern book, except it's slightly larger and it's actually leather bound. The entries in the scorebook, though, are in beautiful copperplate handwriting. And it, it, it has led myself and the other volunteers who work at the museum to actually wonder whether the scorers at the match itself kept score on scraps of paper and that the scorebooks actually were written up after the game and they were kept as the pristine record. I'm sure many clubs... Uh, today might do the same, but looking at the standard of the copperplate handwriting in the Llandovery book and the fact that there aren't any, any uh, smudges 
or even uh, any evidence of any raindrops or any other marks on the paper, all would suggest that they were copied up after the game. Um, was it the first class counties or um, was it the professional cricket uh, uh, teams that were around in, in those sort of the, the late, later Victorian period? Who was the first to begin to, to, to pay somebody to keep a score at a cricket match? Well, as far as I'm aware, scorers were remunerated by the time county matches began in the 1860s. The first county championship took place in 1895. And of course, by then, with the prevalence of a national competition, you needed to have accurate scores with all the national newspapers by the 1890s uh, carrying reports. It was imperative that you had a scorer. The laws of the game also stated, and in fact they still state today, that there have to be two scorers. So it would have been around about the 1860s, I guess, when those early fledgling English counties, and probably as well some of the early teams, early county teams that were being formed in South Wales, probably around about that time, scorers would have been appointed and given a modest fee for what they did. How, how valuable and how useful do you think scorebooks and scorecards are as historical artefacts? Well, they are the, in many ways, the primary source of data. The scorebooks and the scorecards uh, represent an actual record of who did what. They are the records as approved by the umpires. We mustn't forget that in the laws of the game, the umpires at the end of the match will agree with the scorers, will check with the scorers that what has been uh, recorded is true and accurate. So they are, the, they are the primary sources of match information. The newspaper reports are all secondary. They would have been written uh, by uh, someone else, a journalist maybe, sometimes the uh, secretary of a club. So the, so the scorecards, the scorebooks are invaluable. I say invaluable from a historic point of view, uh, from a financial point of view, I wouldn't like to say how much an old scorebook or an old score sheet would, uh, how much money that would fetch uh, uh, at an auction, let's say. But in many cases, these are the only records of games that took place. Sometimes the newspapers would only carry what are known as line scores. So they might say that Team A scored let's say 150 for eight, and team B scored 130 for six. But there wouldn't be the bowling detail, there wouldn't be the ball-by-ball -ball information, or even the breakdown for a batsman in terms of how many runs they scored. So this is the absolute bread and butter for historical research. Are there any interesting stories about scorers I and mean, we often focus on players inevitably in a game um, but do you know any uh, interesting uh, stories about those that have kept scoring games well um, 
<laughs> the answer is yes, I do know um, several uh, several uh, fantastic uh, anecdotes. In fact, I'll, I'll talk first of all about a wonderful man called Jack Mercer. Now, Jack will be uh, known to many people listening as the Glamorgan bowler from 1924 through to 1939. What might not be known is that Jack began his career, in fact, uh, in Sussex, actually before the First World War, and during the First World War actually suffered from shell shock. As part of his recovery, the the medic said, go out and enjoy the sunshine. Well, that's what Jack did. He won a place on the Sussex staff and then moved to enjoy a great success with Glamorgan, and in 1936 became the first and only Glamorgan bowler to take all 10 wickets in an innings, his feet coming against Worcestershire at New Road. Well, after the Second World War, Jack moved to Northamptonshire, where he initially uh, coached, but he then became Northamptonshire's scorer. And in fact, uh, in my first uh, emanation as uh, a Glamorgan scorer, as I said earlier in the uh, early 1980s, I had the delight with actually sat. Of, of, of being able to score with Jack Mercer in the old score box at Sophia Gardens. Well, there was a bit of a story uh, attached to this game. Uh, Jack, by this time, uh, was uh, an octogenarian, and the Glamorgan scorer, Frank Culverwell, was also nearer 80 than 70. And on this particular occasion, uh, the uh, it was quite a warm uh, afternoon just after uh, lunch and I was sat with my uh, scorebook in the member stand at uh, Sophia Gardens uh, alongside the press box and uh, I can remember some of the journalists waving towards me and I thought they were being uh, very friendly but actually what had happened was that uh, both uh, Jack Mercer and Frank Culverwell had enjoyed a, a, a rather good lunch uh, I think that's the politest way of uh, putting it, and uh, had both uh, nodded off uh, whilst play was going on. So I suddenly realised that uh, the the waves from the uh, press box were actually to summon me in, and uh, a very, very uh, well-known journalist, John Billow of the Western Mail, said, oh, Andrew, Andrew, please just come and sit here. Um, I sat alongside him in the press box and alongside in the score box, uh, Jack and Frank, as I say, were, um, well, I think they were counting sheep rather than counting runs. But I uh, I duly uh, kept record in my score book. And when Jack and Frank uh, came to, uh, I was able to tiptoe in and they were very grateful to have a look at my score book and to uh, add the dots and the dashes and the fours and the sixes to their record. Uh, Of course, such things don't happen today. That's a a completely different era uh, in the days when uh, scorers would have been only using uh, pen and paper. I know that uh, Jack Mercer's uh, catchphrase, I can remember, sat, as I said, at the back of the score box alongside him when they were catching up, and he turned to me and he said, everything's approximate. Don't forget that. And uh, that's something that I've uh, taken with me uh, in my uh, subsequent scoring career. 
I have to say that probably the most famous Glamorgan scorer of recent times was a, a wonderful man called Byron Denning. Now, he scored for Glamorgan from 1984 all the way through to 2001. And Byron, like myself, uh, would, uh, as well as keeping score, uh, he would uh, use the public address system uh, at Sapphire Gardens and also at uh, Swansea and all the other grounds where Glamorgan played. And in 1993, one of the games took place, actually, uh, it was the first time ever that Glamorgan had played in the uh, the uh, the outer fringes of the capital city at a place called Penturk. Uh, the, uh, the game was uh, Glamorgan against Northamptonshire in the Sunday League. And it has to be said that Penturk, lovely ground, the only features on the ground, though, were a pavilion. And uh, there were no other obvious buildings around. And, of course, when you have to work out what you call the ends, uh, you could say north end or south end, but uh, Byron uh, brought uh, many a smile to people's faces when he described the northern end as the pavilion end, and then the southern end of the ground, he said, the sea end. Uh, in fact, the sea over nine miles away. Uh, but uh, that went down in Glamorgan folklore. There was another game in 1990 uh, at Pontypridd where Malcolm Marshall had gone through uh, the Glamorgan batting like a red-hot knife through butter. And the game... Uh, well, Hampshire had won the game uh, well inside three days. Of course, don't forget, these now were four-day games. And I can remember that uh, it was just before lunch on the third day when uh, Malcolm Marshall uh, claimed the final wicket. And there was a decent crowd at Ernestang Harrod Park. And in fact, everyone, I think, was looking forward to uh, play on the final day. So Byron in... Uh, in uh, reading out the bowling figures and thanking everyone for their attendance. Byron uh, said, and if anyone uh, has any complaints about the match finishing early, please could you send your letters care of Mr. M. Marshall, uh, Hampshire County Cricket Club, Southampton. There was another game as well I can remember in the late 1980s at Abergavenny, an absolute run fest against uh, Worcestershire. Graham Hick, got a double century and a century in the same match. Uh, there were more fours and sixes there than I think at uh, many other county games. And of course, at the end of the Worcestershire second innings, I think they declared on something like 275 for one, having scored, uh, I think it was 420 for two in the first innings. And so when Byron read out the bowling figures at the end of uh, the Worcestershire second innings, he prefaced his comments by saying, ladies and gentlemen, those of you in charge of small children may wish to cover their ears as I read out the Glamorgan bowling figures. Um, I wish I had his wit and humour when, uh, when reading out the same at, uh, at Sophia Gardens, but Byron Denning uh, was a wonderful, wonderful man and a great scorer. Thank you for those. Um, do, do scorers have their own idiosyncrasies, their own particular style of scoring, or is it 
fairly kind of similar with whoever you'd sit next to in the school box? I guess the answer to your question, Stephen, would be uh, up until about 1993, everyone would have had their own uh, distinctive style, whether you scored on paper sheets in a book, whether you did what's known as linear scoring, whether you used similar sheets to Bill Frindle of Test Match Special Frame, whether you used uh, a Bourne's box book. Uh, everyone would have used their own system that they would have been uh, comfortable with. But since 1992, uh, all county scorers have been using laptops. There have been a, a, a variant of computer programs produced. And now there is a standard package. It's been developed by the ECB in conjunction with a, a company based in New Zealand called NV Play. And it is an absolutely fantastic system. We still keep a paper record. So you still uh, use your, your linear sheets, or in my case, uh, a leather-bound scorebook. But everyone now follows the computerized method. And it's that output which you will see. Those of you uh, listening who would have watched the Glamorgan live streams during the summer, you will have seen the numbers, the data, the information about partnerships, the bowling records, etc. All of that is coming live from my own laptop in the Glamorgan scorebox. It's actually uh, quite a thought for me that probably within five seconds of me hitting the computer key, that information has gone somewhere up into the sky, up into a, a cloud-based system, and is being seen uh, worldwide. In fact, there was uh, a very funny anecdote uh, from a game uh, back in round about uh, 2007. I should say uh, in uh, these days we were using a very different computerized system. But on this occasion at Swansea in 2007, uh, it was just after lunch and uh, Robert Croft was on 25 at the time. And I had a phone call from a very good friend of mine called Kevin Howell, who probably uh, people will have heard as uh, a commentator and reporter for BBC Sport. And Kevin rang me on my mobile, on my mobile phone. It was about... Uh, 10 past quarter past two and he said Andrew he said wow that that was an amazing 50 from uh, Robert Croft was that some sort of record and I said to Kevin sorry what did you say uh, a 50 for Robert Croft and he said yeah yeah he said I've been keeping an eye on the score it's been going up rapidly and I said Kev um Croft is 25 not out and Glamorgan at 200 and 20 for for six he said no he said on on my screen it's showing robert croft is is 50 not out and glamorgan have got many more runs and i said well i can tell you that's not the case i then had to make a phone call through to uh, the place where all the scores were going and it was suddenly it, it, it's the the technicians realized that actually when i was pressing the button it was actually doubling for some reason. There was a fault with the system. Now, I know uh, 
since that day, it's been suggested to me that I shouldn't have actually said that there was a fault with the system and people should have, uh, uh, should have been happy that Glamorgan were making uh, a score well over 400 and that Robert Croft had scored a, a half century in the space of just half an hour or whatever. But, uh, of course, as a county scorer, as a keeper of the records, accuracy is paramount. And, of course, I'm an honest man. And I gather from other people it was then quite astonishing, especially those people who were watching in those days on teletext and CFAX. Instead of seeing the Glamorgan score going upwards they were then seeing the Glamorgan score going backwards. And in fact, the Glamorgan chief executive, who wasn't at the ground in Swansea, he was in his office in Cardiff. He actually rang me and said, Andrew, is there a problem? The scores are going backwards. What's going on? And I, of course, had to explain that there was a technical issue, not with our equipment, but there was a technical issue at the base where the scores were going. So, uh, that, uh, as I say, is one, uh, one slight funny story, but also one aspect that you have to make sure, now using technology, you have to rely on the equipment working properly. And that's why we have all sorts of antivirus uh, software and other things, as well as other people just checking, just keeping an eye on what's going on. And if I haven't actually, for 30 seconds actually made an entry on the laptop, this new scoring software that we use, a little window will pop up on my screen to say, uh, is there an issue? So uh, uh, everything is, is being monitored very closely. I suppose it's, it's Big Brother watching us, but in a very, very nice way. Thank you to Andrew for that enthralling piece. This is only the first instalment of this interview. We'll bring you the second half in our next episode. That'll be in two weeks' time when we head out west with Fraser Nelson of Llanrian Cricket Club. See you then. In the meantime, you can contact us on mwcpod1921 at gmail.com, on Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod, and on Facebook at the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket. All the best. Bye for now. Ah!